all that. Let's bow our heads and ask God to bless this, this sermon. Father, we thank you so much for the heart of this church. I thank you for the blessings that you've given us, a place to worship together, Father, and a place to be called before your throne. And now, Father, I, I ask you that you anoint this message, that you anoint this series, that it be your words, Lord, for what we need in our lives. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I am starting a new sermon series uh, today. The Lord has put this on my heart. I'm going to do the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I'm going to camp out on this for a number of weeks. I did this seven years ago uh, in the Bible study, but I'm really doing it in an entirely different way. I'm not referring to my notes at all. I believe that God wants us to be established as a church. And if we're going to be established as a church, we have to know how God wants us to live. How does he want us to live? How do we comport our lives? How are we supposed to represent ourselves to the world? And there is no greater theological message available to us other than the Sermon on the Mount. It is considered the greatest sermon ever given. And why not? It's given by God. It's given directly by God. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He is carving out the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, and he is establishing the difference between the law and the coming kingdom of grace and justification by faith. It is a totally different world. And that is why many of the Jewish elite never got it. Never got it. And so why do we study it? Why do we really focus this time? Well, Jesus recognized that the scribes and the Pharisees were seriously misinterpreting the law of Moses. They had elevated the law as if the law saved them. But you see, the law didn't save them. All the law did was supposed to expose their weaknesses, their warts, their sins, but instead they would elevate the law and say, we have the law, we have Moses. Well, Jesus has turned everything on its head because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount effectively takes the law of Moses and elevates it in a highly spiritual way. He effectively turns the law of Moses on his head and completely expands it into a new spiritual realm. And so it is a new and great grand elaboration of our theology as Christians. Effectively, it outlines the new commandment of Jesus Christ, which is uh, that we love him even as he loved us first. And so this is the perfect picture of life in the kingdom of God. The Jews, and when I say the Jews, I mean the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elite, had a materialistic sense of what the law was about. They were convinced that God was calling a Messiah who would be a political leader, who would take the boot of Rome off of them. And that's what their focus was. And God had no interest in doing that. God's interest was in their spiritual lives, elevating their spiritual lives and helping them to recognize that the law was never designed to be the saving uh, venue. Uh, 
that it was designed to let you come before the cross of God, the throne of God, and to say, I'm lost, Father. I can't live under the law. I can't live this way. I need a Savior. And so Jesus died in order for us to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the second reason, the second reason that we study it is that it shows the absolute need for the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Nothing does this as much as the Sermon on the Mount because here's the bottom line. The Beatitudes alone could crush you. If you read the Beatitudes and say, well, you know what, it's January 1. I'm going to start the rest of the year and I'm going to live, do my best to live according to these Beatitudes, you're doomed to fail. You cannot do it within your human capability. You will fail miserably. It is only when you come with an indwelling of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit itself, uh, and get the new birth that God gives you the very mechanism that allows you to live uh, under the Beatitudes, that allows you to walk under the Beatitudes. And so here's the thing. There are a number of controlling principles which should be used to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. First, we should remember that the sermon is a description of character and not a code of ethics. This is important. It is a character description. It's not a code of ethics. You know, I once was the president of a, of a private school that prided itself on the fact that it had an ethical code that went from kindergarten through uh, 12th grade. And it did it in such an excellent uh, version that it eventually got to the White House, and the White House gave us a blue ribbon uh, for that school. But I sat down once with the headmaster and said to him, I said, you know, we're doing a wonderful job uh, with the canon of ethics. It was Aristotelian ethics, the Greek ethics, which are terrific. But I said, I've come to realize that we're doomed to fail. He said, why do you say that? I said, because the only way you can live under an ethical code is by grace of God. It is only when you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you can live under an ethical code. You can memorize it. You can recognize the words. But unless God empowers you to live that way, you can never live that way. Your life is doomed to fail. And so this is what we have to recognize as we start this new year uh, and as we study this. Uh, and so it is a description of what Christians ought to be. That's what we're going to see. This is what we ought to be. And if we have the new birth, and if we are infilled with the Holy Spirit, we will exhibit these characteristics. Without the grace of God, and without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible, and we will be doomed to fail. And so all of this is wrapped up together as we start this new year. Now, none of these characteristics that are in this sermon can be called a natural tendency. Each one is produced by grace alone through the Holy Spirit. The Christian, you see, and the non-Christian are completely opposite themselves in what they admire in the world. You see, the Christian man looks at those people who are poor in spirit and admires that characteristic of a person being brokenhearted and pious before the God, before the Lord. But you see, the Greeks would have despised such a man. The Greeks would have repudiated such a man, and that's effectively how humanity looks at it. And so the truth of this is that the Christian 
and the non-Christian live in two completely different realms. And you need to understand that. As you study the Beatitudes, you will see that the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude finish with the same last promise, which is, quote, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was Jesus' way of saying to us that you belong to a different realm. You see, you walk in this world, you live in this world, but you are not of this world. When you have given your heart to God, when you walk with God, you may be present in this world, but you really are a citizen of a different realm. You So you are in this world, but you are not of it. You live here with other people, but you are a citizen of another kingdom. This is the critical emphasis that takes place every single moment in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is meant here as we study this? When Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, because he will do that often, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Well, it means, in essence, wherever Christ's rule is, whatever realm Christ is part of. When he is reigning, that is the kingdom of heaven. Certainly, it is the uh, manifestation of Christ when he was here and he walked in this world. His disciples were there and saw it. In the presence of Christ, that was the kingdom of heaven. And so it also means this. It also means that the kingdom of heaven is present at the very moment in the heart of true believers that accept Jesus Christ. When you accept Christ, part of the reason that you have peace in your heart is that the kingdom of heaven now resides with you. And that's important to understand that. Uh, and, and we see this, if you have your scriptures, if you turn to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, that is the kingdom of God. It is this new kingdom we have entered when we have accepted Christ. Now, a third way of looking at the kingdom is that the day will come, it's coming, and yet it is to come, when Jesus will exercise his authority in this world. And when he comes back in this world, uh, he will reestablish the kingdom of God in the hearts of all his believers, and it will be reestablished in this world, throughout the world, in every country of the world. It will be on that day both a material and a physical manifestation. And you, you can absolutely expect that that will happen. And so we are mindful we are mindful of all of this, of the warning of Jesus at this point in which he said you are in this world, but not of this world. And that really is the guiding principles of our life. Yes, we know we walk here. Yes, we have relationships here. Yes, we may work here. But we are not of this world. We are of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so it's important for us to understand that. And so the kingdom becomes set in every single believer's heart. The kingdom of God is present only in the church when it's present in the hearts of the believers. Let me repeat that. 
The kingdom of God is only present in the church when it is present in the heart of the believers. All right? Let's understand that. The spirit of God, the kingdom of God doesn't manifest in a building. It's manifested in your hearts. And as you walk in and are a part of this service and this church, that is why the kingdom of God is manifested here. And so Paul made this very clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where he said, quote, our citizenship is in heaven. Christ is reigning now in our hearts and ruling at the very moment within us. Now, let us look at the very first beatitude. The very first beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 3, we are given the first beatitude, quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus was talking about poverty of spirit here, he was not talking about poverty in the world at large or poverty in the, in the physical sense or the fiscal sense. He was not talking about the opposite of riches or a materialistic standard. To be poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inward man, not in the outward circumstance of manifestation. It is to be cognizant of one's spiritual poverty before God. Those folks who are caught up in the materialistic things of this world, whether it's, whether it's wealth or power or prestige, all of those things are absolutely not what Jesus wants us to be caught up with. Rather, God is looking also at the inward part of our man. And let me say something. It doesn't mean, and this is true, that there are many poor people financially who are not poor in spirit. You see, just because you're poor or you don't have any finances doesn't mean that you're poor in spirit before God. This is a sobering thought to make. Um, and so I want you to understand this. Another way to understand this concept is to say that being poor in spirit is effectively to be spiritually bankrupt before God. It is the mental state of the man who recognizes the holiness of God, uh, and, and that recognition winds up allowing us to be poor in spirit before the throne of God. It is to such a person, you see, that the kingdom of God belongs to. Effectively, this is one of the strongest statements in the Bible uh, relating to the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus alone. And so I'm sure when Martin Luther came to that conclusion that no amount of works... No, no amount of service to the church, none of that could get you saved. It's when he went back and looked at this and understood what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that being poor in spirit meant spiritually bankrupt before God. Lord, I need a Savior. Lord, I cannot help myself. I cannot follow your precepts, Lord. Forgive me when I look and I see the holiness of, your, of you, Father. And so we must really recognize this as the first principle for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as I said before, they're not a code of ethics. It's not meant that you study it and you memorize it and now suddenly you're in a position where you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, you can't. 
You can't do it. You're incapable of doing it. It's a, it's a recognition that, Lord, I'm broken. Lord, my flesh doesn't allow me to do it. Lord, I ask you, Father, to save me, forgive me, to help me, because I look at you, Lord. I see the holiness of you, Father, and I am far, far away from that. Help me, Father. And when God hears that prayer, God reaches across eternity. He reaches across eternity. And he gives you the grace to accept him and to become one with the kingdom of God. And he, and he forgives your sin. What an amazing, amazing thing this is to understand. And Jesus is bringing this out so that the people of the Jewish faith, those first century people would understand the law of Moses doesn't do this. The law of Moses doesn't do this. It could never do it. God just wanted you to be prepared to understand you were spiritually bankrupt. And frankly, you never did. You never recognized it. And so this is precisely why God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament. It was given to drive man to ask God for mercy. God, help me. God, deliver me. God, save me. Another principle, another principle suggested by the sermon is that there must be an emptying in our lives before there can be a filling. And let me repeat that. There must be an emptying in our lives before there can be a filling. We must become poor in spirit before we can be rich in God's blessing. The old wine must be poured out first before the new wine can be poured in. And you know, this was evident right at the very beginning of our Lord's life. Uh, and you know, we read this passage when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to be presented on the eighth day. And Simeon, that great godly man who had been waiting for the manifestation of God there, they lifted up Jesus and prayed and acknowledged in a prophecy to Mary and Joseph acknowledged that at the presentation of the infant, quote, and this is in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, quote, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. The fall and rising again of many in Israel. Note the order of the prophecy. First, the fall. The fall, meaning, Lord, I am lost. Lord, I am bereft. Lord, I need a savior. And after that, the rising, the filling. The emptying comes first. The emptying of self, of arrogance, of self-righteousness, of the fact that you think you can take care of your own life, that you're the master of your own ship. You are not. Let's make that abundantly clear. You are not. If you're the master of your own ship, I'm telling you right now, that ship's going down. One of the things I always laugh about is when I hear people say, well, God is my co-pilot. He's your co-pilot. Well, I'm staying out of your plane because if you're at the controls, when it's going down, I'm, I want God to be the pilot, not the co-pilot. Amen to that church? You understand this? So get out of your head any kind of thought that you have any right to take control of your own life. You do not. 
One of the recognitions that you have here in the Sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount is that he is in complete control of your life. It is only when you finally say, I am yours, Father. Lead me. Teach me where to go. Teach me what to say. Teach me how I should address your needs in the kingdom. Do this, Father, and I will listen to you. And when you do that every day of your life and you walk in absolute submission, God will lift you up. And the blessings of God will be poured into your life in a way that you'll never, never possibly experience it before. And so this really becomes a way of walking with God. The manifestation of God in your life. So there must be a true poverty of spirit. Really. And church, this is really one of the things that I want to build this church on. I want God to impress this on us. That we will grow together uh, in the magnificence of God as long as we walk this way. That is why God has impressed on my heart that the Sermon on the Mount is where we need to start. And so this is unnatural to man. It's anathema to man, uh, and it is therefore impossible within ourselves. Only a direct confrontation with the holy and just God can produce it. We do not create the poverty of spirit by looking at other people, looking at your neighbors, looking at your minister, Looking at your church, the only way you produce the poverty of spirit is on your knees looking to a holy God. And when you look at that holy God, when you get that vision, your heart is brought down. And your pride is brought down. And your humanity is brought down. Uh, and so any other comparison in this world is irrelevant. When you look in the mirror... I don't want you to look back and say, oh, yeah, you're doing a good job, John. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. All right, or Sally, oh, you know, you're doing such a good thing in this world. That's not the way it works. When you look into the mirror, you should see Jesus looking back at you. And when you see Jesus looking back at you, you're convicted. You're convicted in burden and say, Father, forgive me. Father, help me. I need a Savior. I need an infilling of the Holy Spirit every single day of my life. Why? Because the pale that holds the Spirit of God in my life has holes in it. You see? It's the nature of what it's like to walk in this world. And I'm walking in this world, and I'm surrounded by evil. And even though I'm not part of this world, I'm taking the slings and arrows of this world. And effectively, the pail winds up dripping out and dripping out. And that is why you need an everyday infilling of the Spirit of God. That's what God expects from you. And so you can't do this by blithely walking. You do it only by in prayer and reading the Scripture. And this is why we cite Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And if you would turn to your Bibles, I'd like you to read this along with me. Because this really is an example of why God wants us to have a poverty of spirit. And so you see, it was mentioned in the Old Testament. But truly, the religious elite did not get it. And that is why now God is reestablishing the standard with Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I realized and heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. Oh, God, what a great picture of the Sermon on the Mount. What a great picture of the atoning power of Jesus Christ. What a great recognition that I am broken. I am lost. I am a man of sin. My lips are unclean. Forgive me, God, I can't look at you. I can't be in your presence, and yet you see what happens when you make that recognition, when you make that, that statement that God reaches across and he puts the brand on your lips. And when he does that, as, as the seraphim said here, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Can you imagine that this statement was written 700 years years before Christ would die on the cross. And yet they never got it. They never understood it because they were filled with pride and self-righteousness. They didn't think they needed to be broken. They had the law, but let that not happen to us as a church. Because what I see here is that when we bow in brokenness, when we bow before God, when we tell him that we need a savior and he reaches across eternity and forgives our sins and seals us forever with justification, when that happens, what occurs next? Whom shall I send? Send me. Send me. You see, this is what God does. And so, so many of you have been looking for a way to serve God. You've been wanting to be the hands and feet of God. You want to be able to go into a lost world and represent to the lost girl, world what God means to you. And so you recognize that in order to do this, what we need first is this brokenness of spirit. And when you approach it like this, he will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will justify you with faith. He will raise you up. He will elevate you. And you will say, send me. That's the message today, church. Send me in a million different ways to your family, to your friends, to a lost world. 
Send me, Father. Let me be used by you, God, for your purpose, not me. It's not about me, God. It's about you. And that's the message. That is how we hope to live from this day forward and to dedicate each and every day of our life to him so that he will empower us, and he will empower us. The Bible is clear about that. Because immediately after the, the prophet was touched with the coals on his lips, immediately he said, send me. And that is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That is the empowerment of the word of God. So this is a message that resonates with me, and I hope it resonates with you, church. I hope that as you reflect today on what we've said and studied, that you'll go back and look at it, look, think about these words, reflect on these words, and really, I hope that you prayerfully ask God to examine your heart. And that in that emptying aspect, in that emptying aspect, and I would say this to you, this is an emptying that requires a daily exercise. You just don't exercise, you know, you don't empty yourself in 1958. You know, and I heard people saying that, I've been saved, 1958, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, I got saved. I say, that's great. What are you doing lately? Well, I've been kind of busy lately, you know got a lot of things I'm doing. Uh, but you understand, this is a daily walk with God. What I'm saying here is this process of emptying out and recognition of self before God requires a daily walk. And if you do this, if you do this the way Jesus has spoken about, then what will happen in your life as you are refilled and refilled and refilled, you will inevitably say, send me. Lord, send me. And the result of that will be when you get to heaven, the Lord will embrace you and say, well done. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Isn't that the words that we want to hear, each and every one of us? Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you, Father, for this message. Lord, I thank you for, for this great theology that Jesus has given us. I thank you, Father, for Jesus. I thank you for the whole doctrine of justification by faith, Lord, and that you've delivered us from the law because none of us could be saved by the law, but instead we're saved by Christ on the cross. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us. And so let us be ever more cognizant, Father, of what you did for us and about our own spiritual poverty. And so that as we recognize that and you fill us, we can be your servants. So that each and every one of us today will say, Lord, Father, send me. In his name, amen. Amen.